0: Simple Beep, episode 75, Mac Addict. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormony. And I'm Brian Satorius, And we have a very spiffy topic this <laughs> month coming up, but we have a lot of follow-up to kick off the beginning of the show, so let's go through it. First of all, you might have noticed uh, one other entry in the podcast feed, and that this episode it has been a little bit longer than usual between our main episodes of Simple Beep, but there was still plenty of Simple Beep content because we did a Mist playthrough on Twitch. So in September was the 25th anniversary of Mist. There were lots of different events going on around the web, uh, but we decided that it was a good time to actually revisit the game. So I hooked up my iPad to my Mac to Twitch, which meant that we had a slightly weird ported experience of Mist, but it was the original game. Uh, none of that real Mist stuff. And uh, we went through the whole thing uh, in a couple of sittings, and we'll post links to that in the show notes here. So the way that Twitch works is you can do a video on demand that lasts after the live broadcast, and those, I think, stick around for 30 days unless you have some, like, premier top-level account. Um, so those will expire eventually, but if you're listening to this episode, as it comes out, you can definitely go and check them out. And I have just, before we started recording today, archived those. So I've got a copy of our full playthroughs on my Mac and maybe those will get put up someplace more permanent in the future. And if we do, uh, we'll definitely link that and mention it again in a future episode.
1: And, uh, yeah, it's a complete playthrough, including every possible ending.
0: Yes, we were full completionists, and uh, there, I think we were pretty efficient, right? You know, like four to five hours is, is not bad to get through all of the Ages of Mist, uh, but we were not looking things up. We were going purely on our 20-some-year-old recollections of playing the game, which meant that it was not flawless, and there were a couple moments where we got stuck, but we persevered and made it all the way through.
1: Now, going back to... I think these episodes were last year or over a year ago are episodes about Easter eggs in Apple's emoji set. Um as we record this, iOS 12.1 is in beta and I guess uh the equivalent Mojave point update as well, which will include this calendar year's uh emoji release from Unicode stylized in the Apple way. And friend of the show Phil Dokis alerted us uh, that a couple of these new emoji have some of the Easter eggs that we've covered. Um, specifically, the receipt emoji has a couple line items on there for misfits, square pegs, and round holes,
0: which are all free,
1: and is also dated July 17th. And uh, I think, as Ed pointed out in our show Twitter's response to Phil, the luggage emoji has a couple stickers on it that are themselves other emoji from the set, like the island emoji or the, the like, cropped top of the Tokyo Tower.
0: And the one sticker that's on there that isn't another emoji is Half Dome. So one of those local flavor uh <laughs> Apple Easter eggs. Yeah. Moving on, we're just jumping around all the different topics that we've covered on recent shows here. Um I don't know, this is Wi-Fi news, um, which not every piece of Wi-Fi news fits, even though we did an episode on Airport. But I think we did have a long part of that show complaining about the nonsense of 802.11 naming schemes. A-B-G-N-A-C. Well, the people who make Wi-Fi, the Wi-Fi Consortium, decided that they too needed to stop the madness because nobody knew what AC was. And they have now decided that Wi-Fi is going to have version numbers, more like generation numbers, I think, because... You know, it doesn't have version numbers in the traditional sense. There's no, like, Wi-Fi 6.1. Uh, but there will be 1 through 6, I believe. Uh, and the current state-of-the-art is generation 5 or version number 5. And then whatever was supposed to be next, which I think was 802.11ax or something, they're like, no, that's that's terrible. It's going to be Wi-Fi 6. In one respect, I, you would think that Apple would like that. I'm sure that it will show up in the appropriate places in Apple software. Uh, they'll be happy to get rid of references to BGN and A networks and all that um, and just go with these simple Wi-Fi version numbers. But they will presumably not be putting it on any hardware products ever again. And now moving
1: on to a couple items of follow-up about our most recent episode about the Apple and Mac rumors community. And uh, this first item of follow-up, again from Phil Dokus, is something that I remembered as it happened and I can't believe we forgot to include it in our show because it's uh, an incredible piece of Apple rumor lore uh, concerning the asteroid rumored hardware, which was going to be uh, an Apple branded and Apple created breakout box to go with GarageBand kind of at the the heyday of iLife. I think this was kind of all throughout the year 2006 where there are other rumors, of course, going around of, of what the the full transition of PowerPC to Intel processors will look like across the Mac line. Is Apple going to make a phone, et cetera? But uh, there was this rumor about uh, a nice box that you could plug into your Mac that was designed by Apple that you could, you know, do MIDI instruments or microphones or whatever, and it would, in true Apple parlance, just work with GarageBand and help you create your your songs and your music with. Uh, real physical instruments that you already had. And uh, Apple went after a couple of the sites that posted the rumors of this uh, codename Asteroid piece of hardware. And as I'm sure everyone listening to this knows, Apple never released (laughs) any any piece of hardware designed to be an audio interface for GarageBand, leading many to believe that Asteroid was a honeypot hoax rumor designed to kind of smoke out Uh, these rumor sites sources and figure out where some of the leaks were coming from within Apple. Great story. So definitely check out the link in the show notes.
0: Following on from talking about GarageBand leads into another uh, bit of, uh, well, not really rumor, but rumor parody, self-aware parody that I had forgotten about. uh, But listener Yannick sent in to us, and this is on YouTube, a clip from a keynote presentation where Steve Jobs sits down and is demoing some of the new features in GarageBand, specifically features for creating podcasts, which have since gone away from GarageBand, but that's a different story. But he wanted to show off its capabilities and And so he has this little, like, one-minute scripted podcast that he puts together that's called Steve's Rumor Podcast, and he records the audio live on stage. It's, like, 45 seconds long, and he puts in a music bed and puts in custom art, and I did not know that, like, that early on, Apple supported the uh, custom art embedded in MP3s at different time points, like you can do with chapters now, and... Uh, apparently, that was a thing you could do directly in GarageBand. There was like a separate timeline for the art. And so he has this fake rumor podcast with things about like giant iPods. And then he drops in a picture of a toaster with a click wheel. Like it, it is absurd. <laughs> anyway, we will link to it in the show notes. And you should definitely check out the one and only episode of Steve's Rumor Podcast.
1: All right, uh that was a lot of follow-up from a lot of episodes. So let's get right into the topic of this episode, MAC addict. And uh before we get into all the details about it, um, I just want to say that I was a subscriber, I think, for just one year of Mac Addict magazine. But in keeping with the tagline of our show, MAC addict may have had its uh primary incarnation as a magazine, but it really was at least to me, but I think to everyone who read it and participated in it, a leader in the Mac community of uh, the certain pre-OS X and and through the beginnings of OS X era. Uh, It was more than just a magazine. It it kind of encapsulated uh, the dominant feeling a lot of us had (laughs) in in using our Macs before Apple became the trillion-dollar company it is now.
0: Well, I wanted to kind of put it in the broader perspective of Mac publications, and maybe we'll come back to some of the others in future episodes. But you said that you're a subscriber, and I know that in my family, we were a Macworld household and uh, also subscribed to MacAddict. And the thing that was the difference between them was that everybody read Macworld, like me, my parents, my grandpa, we all looked through Macworld when it came in the mail. And then I subscribed to Mac Addict, and nobody else cared about reading it particularly because it was, well, it was, as we'll see, it was more written for me, a teenage male. (laughs) But it was interesting that it filled this different area. So I wanted to ask you, Brian, in your family, what were the Mac publications that you regularly subscribed to or read either in print or online? In print, the only thing that
1: we ever subscribed to and had delivered to the home was that one year of Mac addict. So not even Macworld. Not even Macworld as a regular subscription, but my dad would buy like the the full price newsstand Macworld when the the cover and accompanying story was something relevant, like when he was starting to comparison shop or <laughs> uh, for the for the next model. Um, so we had some Macworld issues and this one, year of Mac Addict. And then of course, all the uh, catalogs like Mac Mall, Mac Connection and all those.
0: That was a whole different category. But yeah, th- those just showed up. Those were <laughs> those were like little parasites. They're spores in the air. They just showed up in your mailbox if you had ever ordered so- anything Apple related from any company ever.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was like a side effect of the AOL CDs. <laughs>
0: So I guess neither of us were then like Mac user or Mac Week people. Correct. Yeah. I think that we got Mac User for one year because it came free with something, but like we never wound up reading it.
1: You mentioned online publications and we've covered a lot of like more niche focused sites like icon sites I would read regularly uh, back when I was really into theming and customization, particularly through icons. And as we'll get to later on in this episode, there was a uh, a web ring <laughs> organized by Mac addict of uh, similarly minded sites that, without I think, direct influence from MacAddict, uh, uh, the magazine and the web ring, I ended up reading a lot of the same sites that they were clustered with. Uh, we'll, we'll and again, we'll we'll get to them later.
0: Yeah, I kind of meant that in the sense of companion sites to to print publications. Like the fact of the matter is that I read Macworld.com all the way up until it ceased existing only a few years ago, uh, and print copies of MacWorld ceased existing a few years before that. And I was not a subscriber, hence contributing to their demise <laughs> a few years even earlier than that. So, uh, but there were some of those sites that were still, you know, either linked to regularly or things that I went and actively checked even after I was no longer a print subscriber. But I was a print subscriber of Mac Addict for, well, a few years, and certainly most of its heyday, and we'll get into the arc of its life in just a moment.
1: Let's get into Mac Addict, the print magazine first, because this is arguably the the primary way to consume Mac Addict. Uh, Like I just said, there is a little bit of an arc to Mac Addict, the magazine, but for the majority of its lifespan being called Mac Addict. Uh, The Internet Archive continues to be wonderful. We've used it for software and some back issues of Macworld, but you can almost get the entire print run of Mac Addict
0: magazine. And certainly the whole print run that matters.
1: uh, Full scans, neatly organized on the Internet Archive. We'll put a link in the show notes. And there is also, helpfully, um, a couple scans from the final two years of the magazine named Mac Addict at a website called KiWidget or KiWidget. It's like Kiwi plus Widget. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Written by Greg Esposito. Um, And it seems to just have been a a labor of love on his part. And we'll put a link to his scans from the final years of Mac Addict in our show notes as well.
0: And I definitely recommend going to the Internet Archive versions. And unlike some of the other, like the incomplete Macworld catalog, uh, this is Totally complete up through the first hundred some issues, and the way that I recommend diving into this is, you can pick a uh, you know pick any issue that looks interesting to you, uh, especially maybe from you know the first year or two, and then you can flip through uh, page by page, and it loads each page as you go, and it's pretty snappy. It's it's a good interface, but if you really want to get the feel of picking up a Mac addict from the newsstand. Or getting it in your mailbox and flicking through it, there is a thumbnail view that loads in very quickly. And you can suddenly see like 15 or 20 pages at once and scroll through the whole issue very quickly. And it gives you a really good idea of what these magazines looked like, how they were laid out, the different sections that they had. And one of the more interesting things is like the advertising that they had, because it was very indicative of what was going on in... Hardware and software in the Mac universe at this time. So maybe we should get into the timeline then. The first issue of Mac Addict was the September 1996 issue. And so hitting, hitting the ground running at this point in the timeline, you can imagine that there were like clones and Mac OS eight talk. And that's exactly where this begins. <laughs> In fact, I think in the first issue, they reviewed three different Mac clones was like their feature review. It was also interesting the attitude that they brought you know, with this name, Mac Addict, which is, you know, as compared to user, week and world, which are pretty neutral, Addict has uh, definitely has some emotional valence to it. And they owned up to this in the first issue. The very first thing in every issue was the editor's note. Uh, Cheryl England was the editor at the beginning, at the outset of Mac Addict, and began by saying, are we crazy to launch this magazine in these seemingly dark times for the Mac? Mac Addict is for people who are passionate about their Power Macs, Quadras, Performas, Power Books, and even their little Mac classics that sit forlornly in a closet. And it was true. That was exactly the time that they were launching a Mac. Magazine. So this was the cover for this issue said Why the Max Future is Bright. It had this 3D rendered Apple logo that looked very shiny and positive. And this was about nine months before the next summer in 1997, the more famous magazine cover with a large Apple logo on the front, which is Wired's Prey cover. Where you know it's got like the crown of thorns and is bleeding, and pray is the only large word on the cover, <laughs> <laughs> so this was the attitude that they were bringing at the very beginning of Mac addict happiness and joy and commitment in a commitment to a cause in a dark time
1: yeah, uh, I think that's that last piece, commitment to a cause is what for better or for worse remained the the emotional undercurrent of Mac Addict magazine is uh, times may be dark. So we got to rally behind the Mac or the Mac may be awesome and we need to brag and show off (laughs) how awesome it is, but stay committed.
0: So like I said, Cheryl England was the first editor. I think she was in that job for about a year, year and a half. Uh, The magazine was taking off and being very successful for its parent company, Imagine Media, and she got promoted up to, I guess it was like, producer and uh up to imagine media hq and they needed a new editor-in-chief david reynolds took over and then there was this sort of trio of people who took uh major editor roles when england left day-to-day david reynolds nikki eckler and jennifer genmo morgan Mm -hmm. and these people like i know a few names of people from other publications of this time. Jason Snell comes to mind from Macworld and still follow him and his podcasts and all those sorts of things here today. But this group of people, they really injected their personalities into the magazine. And whereas in some other magazines, you would kind kind of skip over the editor's column, it was upfront and it was like required reading. It set the tone for every issue and was you know again part of the personality
1: and you could get the personality certainly in the editor's column but in all aspects of the magazine and as we'll later discuss the accompanying cd and website um one kind of example of that that i remember distinctly from my one year of subscription uh was that uh, an art director david ross joined the magazine and uh editors or contributors would sign off kind of like with screen name type things. Like you said, uh, Jennifer Morgan was Genmo and David Ross signed as D Ross. But, uh, there was like this brief saga in the letters to the editor <laughs> where someone wrote in and it's like, actually the dictionary definition of D Ross Dross is kind of like, you know, like flotsam and jetsam. <laughs> Something regarded as worthless rubbish. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and, I think he wrote a letter back and the person wrote back the following issue. And it was things like that, uh, that really, Ed, like you said, like the, the personality of the people behind the magazine shown through in a way that more news oriented magazines, uh, you know, put the, the content, the story, the facts of what they're editing forward. And, you know, the, the author, or the editor try to keep their, their personal bias or personal opinions out of us. Mac addict was the complete opposite. And I would argue Uh, succeeded because of that in addition to many other things of course
0: right some of these people who stayed on for multiple years then almost became like characters right and and news publications don't usually have characters but this magazine did and you would not find it weird for certain staffers or editors to appear in articles you know for the pure practical reason of, okay, we're testing out this software and we need, we need someone to use it. We need someone to appear in the photo or video or whatever. But then also this fact that where you might not acknowledge other members of the staff in a publication and you wouldn't even acknowledge yourself unless you were writing sort of a column, like an editor's column or a recurring feature column, you wouldn't even call out yourself. But in Mac Addict, they would certainly like some other person who worked at the magazine would get, like, their name dropped in some joke in a review. That would just happen, and being in on that and understanding who they were talking about was part of the fun of keeping up with the magazine. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, just to give a little bit more of the overall arc of what happened here, you said that uh, Dross came in uh, from issues about 30 to 60. Uh, for the first 40 issues, they were actually numbered prominently on the front. It was part of the logo, it said MAC in big letters, and then ADDICT underneath in a box. And at the end, then, it said the serial issue number of the magazine, so 1 through 40. Uh, and it also had in small print somewhere else the month and year. But they were sort of known as MAC ADDICT number 17, like this is Simple Beep number 75. <laughs> and it that doesn't seem so strange in terms of podcasts now. Tons of shows do that. Um, you know, This Week in Tech is up pushing 700 or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it was a little bit of a different way of treating a magazine. It was more like a comic book, I guess, um, where they would do that as, you know, a serial numbering kind of scheme. When they got up to number 80, I think this was when they were doing maybe like their second redesign of the format of the print magazine. They added a new tagline that was a better machine, a better magazine, which I, I mean, they had lost a little bit of their punch as we'll get to, but at at that point in 2003, but they still had that sort of adversarial, you know, and they were willing to put that on the front of every single issue. Um, that was issue 80, and then the last issue as Mac Addict was number 127, which was January of 2007, a few years later, and then it was more than redesigned for the third time. Uh, I think that there was sort of a whole new editorial switch, uh, and whole sections of the magazine were, were taken out, and it got reborn as a new publication that was called Mac Life. Uh, which I never subscribe to and we're not going to talk a whole lot about because it's kind of the end of the road for, for Mac Addict.
1: Right. And Mac Life is still in publication. It surprises me every time I see it in one of those uh, airport newsstands. It's different in a lot of ways, but I think primarily to people who are fans of the original Mac Addict, it's because all of the personality has been taken out. And in the few times that I've picked one up to thumb through it, it's all about reporting on the latest hardware, the latest software, uh, tips and tricks, reviews, whatever, but like no personality, just here are the facts. Here's what's new. Here's what you can do with it. Now get out of here.
0: If you had told me that MacLife was the successor to Mac User instead of Mac Addict, I would have been less surprised.
1: If you're interested, you can find uh, the early issues of MacLife Magazine, not in the same uh, catalog as the Internet Archive, but Google Books has a couple of those, issues and i guess we'll put a link to that in the show notes
0: the one thing that i like about mac life is that it was born sort of in the middle of the os 10 era as it was flourishing right and uh their logo type it's like mac pipe character life so it's got this it's got this little bit of unix in it i feel like <laughs> just in the design there um and there was one weird, epi- or I keep calling them episodes, like their are podcasts. There was one weird issue. The very first issue that was supposed to be the, the first one as Mac Life was still called Mac Addict for some reason. And there's just one of these where the logo on the front cover is Mac Pipe Addict. And that was uh, February of 2007. And then that went away uh, in March of 07.
1: It's almost like, here's here's a way we can help people transition. Look, part of this is, is, the, uh, is the magazine you've come to know and love. Part of this is styled like the magazine this is going to be for the rest of its life.
0: So we, we talked a little bit about the overall feel of Mac Addict and what a joy it was to read. But I think it's also important to cover the different sections of each magazine. And these are the kinds of things that you'll see if you go on the Internet Archive and start browsing around through these. And these were very reliable um, sections that lasted for several years. Uh, you know, really that first two or three designs of Mac addict. So some things were what you would expect in any magazine, the editor's note letters, uh, reviews, but there were these other features that were pretty interesting. So there was one called get info, which was sort of short news pieces, Sort of a like you know, stories or announcements that you might have missed kind of uh, little features. Cravings, which was not reviews of products, but just sort of like lusting after products, uh, which is kind of fun. Uh, there was a game section called Power Play, which actually took up a lot of the magazine and was very positive about Mac gaming for a while. And with good reason at this time... And then with less reason later on. <laughs> um, and one of the things that was very Mac addict was the back page column, which was called shutdown, which is a great name uh, for the back page of a Mac magazine. And again, stood in real contrast to some of the other stuff that you would see in back page magazine columns. I mean, compared to, again, the obvious comparison, Mac world at the same time. Yes, I always read the back page of Macworld because it was The Desktop Critic by David Pogue, and it was great. And it was an opinionated column, it was mandatory reading, but it was, you know, it was rooted in fact. <laughs> and instead, Shutdown was this sort of oniony weirdness. Uh, the The format changed every month, just sort of a collage of in-jokes and weird pop culture references, all with a heavy dose of Mac nerdery. And it was something that I don't think I've seen anywhere else.
1: Probably the most prominent piece of Mac Addict that contributed to its unique, fun uh, personality was its little stick figure mascot, Max. Max. And uh, this is a little stick figure with an expressive face whose nose was drawn on his face in such a way that it kind of bisected his face in the same way that the Mac OS logo does. And um, we'll get to, I think, maybe his his most frequently used uh, purpose. But he appeared all over the magazine, all throughout the magazine. He usually had uh, a little appearance on the lower left corner of the front cover where he would say, have like a quick joke to say about either the, the cover story, the cover topic, or something just related to the general happenings of that month or that issue. Um, there was a stylized version of Max to uh, coincide with the heading for each section. So like Max writing letters to the editor, Max writing the editor's note, Max uh, holding a, a game controller for power play, things like that. Um, and it was just... Like Ed said earlier, like there were elements of this like issue numbers that made Mac Addict feel like a comic book. This was a magazine with personality. And I think nothing did a better job of communicating that to me and making me feel like this was something that I didn't have to take seriously. This wasn't a newspaper. Than seeing the little Mac's face uh, all throughout the magazine.
0: Yeah, like on the very first issue, it has that bright and shiny Apple logo. And he's down in the corner. He says, you're going to need shades. like
1: <laughs> <laughs> It was just goofy. Yes, to get back to what I was saying earlier, Max was also there to uh be the the scale for their review section. So they basically had a four point review scale. The the best, the four out of four was Max jumping through the air, uh kind of like a like a cheerleader <laughs> jump pose, and it was freaking awesome. Three out of four was Max kind of with a cheesy grin and he had two giant thumbs up. It was spiffy. Two out of four was Max kind of with his hands on his hips and a disaffected look on his face. Yeah, whatever. And the worst one out of four is Max doubled over, uh, almost like gagging himself on his own finger.
0: Yeah, point, pointing pointing, his own finger down his throat.
1: And uh, blah.
0: Yeah. And then this eventually got animated and put on one of the companion CDs and uh turned into a little uh little like song routine <laughs> that is still embedded in my brain and will now be embedded in the podcast right here. Wow! Awesome. Spiffy. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Blah. Unfortunately, during one of these major redesigns, they decided that the I don't know, the rating system was too fun. You know, corporate or- overlords came in and said, "Ah, I don't know, can we really call products freaking awesome? You can. Uh, didn't They had like physical awards that they would give to the software developers
1: who made a freaking awesome game or utility. Like I'm pretty sure Panic has a, a glass or plastic freaking awesome for Transmit 1.
0: But in issue number 72 in 2002, in uh, the waning days of Mac Addict, uh, Max was not eliminated, but removed from the review section and was replaced, the The four-point scale was replaced with a five-point scale, five-widget scale. They actually said that in print, <laughs> um, where widget means the little blue aqua bubbles of OS X because they were real hype for OS X at this point. Uh, and the scale was awesome, not freaking. Great, solid, so-so, and lousy. And I don't know, man, you have to be in the right frame of mind to read a review of a product that is bad. And lousy does not get you in the same frame of mind as blah. (laughs) Also, the rating scale was color coded, which I really enjoyed. Made it super easy to flip through the review section and see what was good. Or if you were on the lookout for them just panning something, look for that little blue circle for the worst point on the scale. The scale, the original scale was great and was one of the trademarks of Mac addict's attitude, uh, which we've alluded to already. But that was the main selling point of the publication and one of the things that I loved about it. Uh, you said, Brian, that... Uh, you didn't subscribe to MacWorld in your family, and that your dad would kind of pick up one off the newsstand or at you know, at the micro center or whatever. Actually, that's a hundred percent correct. It was at the micro center. Okay, well, we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, if it was on, if the cover story was on a topic that was of particular interest, and Mac addict went for the same kind of thing, like we're going to get people into this magazine through. Having eye catching covers. And so they were often these 3D rendered covers, which I'm sure they did at like great time and expense, uh, especially in 96, 97. Uh, I already mentioned, I'm going to mention a few of these that I particularly like, and then you can go check them out on the Internet Archive if you're interested. Uh, Number one was at 3D Rainbow Apple. Number five was my first issue that I picked up that I did pick up at the Micro Center, because I saw this on the shelf and knew that I had to have it, as opposed to all of the other magazines that were there. This was their first Hack Your Mac issue, and the cover art is a 3D-rendered, even more cartoonified version of the Jack in the Box that is the ResEdit logo. And at this point in my life, I knew that I accomplished 65% of the things that I could do on my Mac by using ResEdit, I saw this and knew exactly what they were alluding to. And I'm like, there's more ResEdit information in this magazine? I must have it. (laughs) Um, So they succeeded there. And uh, I think I took issue five home, read it cover to cover, uh, typed in this whole string of hex into RezEdit just to see what the secret code said, did all kinds of stuff, and then said, I must subscribe to this magazine, and didn't look back for several years. Uh, a few other iconic ones here. Uh, number 17 is Steve Jobs photoshopped into wearing a priest collar, like a Catholic priest collar. It's a one-bit image Atkinson dithered in silver foil print... <laughs> With a 3D halo over his head because Steve Jobs is coming back to save Apple. <laughs> and I don't know. That's just like it's such a striking image to me. Uh I, I mentioned the first issue, but that and the prey wired issue, like in contrast to each other, it's like pray, prayers answered. <laughs> Here's the saint. That would have been the order, like issue one, then pray in the summer, and then 17 would have been like five or six months after the Prey cover. Uh, So they were probably thinking the same thing. And then uh, there were some things, they didn't tend to go for product shots on the front in the early days of Mac Addict, but an exception was issue number 23 because, hello, we had the original iMac and it's just a side angle product shot of the iMac on a yellow background and says, wow.
1: Of <laughs> uh, particular note on this cover too, I mentioned that Max was usually hanging out in the lower left corner of the front cover. And it was usually the same drawing of him, like a kind of standard smile to look like the, the Mac OS logo. Hands on his hips. But in the one with the iMac, they've redrawn his face. So his eyes are gigantic and bugging out <laughs> of his head and his hands are above his head. and He's got the
0: little like sweat beads coming off of his head and he's also saying wow (laughs) i'm just zooming in on that now yeah it's it's excellent and you can tell that this cover was put together in haste um but i think that every magazine's cover was put together in haste because there were effectively like no product shots um i think that jason snell tells a story about how they had like negative two days to get the product shots of the original imac into the magazine and i think maybe it wasn't even on the cover of the first one that they published they had like special numbered pages in the middle that were printed like out of continuity it went like 38 special page one through four 39 (laughs) uh so the same thing here like there was one picture available of this thing and uh and they threw it on the cover Oh, the, the secondary story on that is the banner that says Apple announces Mac OS X, details inside.
1: That's, yeah, that's just a minor story. I can remember the first episode that I picked up, which was also purely based on what was on the cover. It's, ep- oh, episode. <laughs> it's issue number 30, uh, the special pirate issue. And uh, it's got a pirate flag, but it's the Mac OS logo instead of a, a skull with crossbones and a hat. Um, and th- th- this must have been Uh, around the same time of the year where they have Hack Your Mac, which was a a regular feature. But this one was, I think, less about software hacking and getting into actual nitty-gritty hardware hacking. Um, (laughs) The subhead is 10 ways to void your warranty. The thing that I picked it up for is the first uh, hack that's listed on the cover is add uh, solder and LED to your puck mouse, which was, of course, uh, shown off in, like, pre-release promotional videos. And of course, never made it to the real thing. So it was this little object of lore. Uh, and at this point I had an iMac, I had a puck mouse and I was like, Oh, I, I would love to learn how to be able to do this, but of course it's soldering. I did not have a soldering iron, so I never did it, but this was my gateway into Mac attic magazine. And, uh, Ed, just like you said, when I was finished reading it, I made sure to subscribe.
0: I just pulled up that cover and stories in the top right corner. Block web advertising. Okay, good. Still relevant. Set up a renegade internet radio station. You probably don't have the bandwidth for that in 1999, but sure. And then fake IDs, cheap, easy, and illegal. That's funny. I wonder if my parents were like, he's buying a magazine to learn how to make a fake ID
1: here in like ninth grade. <laughs> so these these early covers where uh, the, the staff is in like the full camaraderie personality mode. Uh, the magazine gets to celebrate some of these big wins for Apple and the Mac and the iMac and later like the fruity flavor iMacs and the Yosemite G3 and like everything seems to be going well. The, the magazine gets to celebrate triumphs and put its attitude front and center. And then as it as the decline of Mac Addict, the fun magazine begins, uh the covers get a lot less fun, a lot less dynamic and more reliant on product photography, often even product photography supplied by
0: Apple. There's this one stretch in of like, it's not like a single year. It's like maybe 14 issues, but you can fit them all on one screen and on the internet archive where it's like the same Quicksilver G4 four times in 14 issues. (laughs) This
1: coincides uh, not only with like, obviously a a change in cover design philosophy and, uh, a toning down of the personality, but also the logo changed. I think this was the second time the logo changed to not having any comic book elements, but just a a kind of unstyled sans serif font.
0: Right. So the, the second logo was, uh, the words Mac addict camel case in this, I don't think it's impact, but it's kind of an impact like font. Um, and they would be in, Two different colors, and they would change up the colors each issue. And then, yes, uh, starting with issue seventy, uh, it's like it's not Helvetica Noia, but it sure looks like Helvetica Noia. And Mac was always in black, and Addict was always in blue.
1: And like the one fun thing is the the tittle of the eye is the classic Mac uh, arrow cursor, the black with the white stroke arrow cursor.
0: And occasionally they would sub that out. Um. Oh no! It was in the previous one where they would always where they would occasionally sub it out. Sometimes it would be a, a cursor. Sometimes it would be Max's face. Sometimes it would be something else that was topically relevant for the particular uh, issue. Like um, for whatever reason, the May two thousand one issue, the dot of the eye is an iMac. In fact, it's a blue Dalmatian iMac.
1: Yeah, and and as we said before, uh, by two thousand and seven the full kind of uh, corporatization of Mac addict magazine came to a close as it transitioned from not even being able to put addict in the name of the publication and switching to Mac life.
0: Yeah. And I think that one of the things that fueled them in the early days was their shameless buy-in to the Mac versus PC wars, windows versus Microsoft versus Apple uh, in the late nineties. And, This had no more obvious uh, incarnation than on the issue 10 CD was a tiny, tiny postage stamp QuickTime movie (laughs) that has been uploaded to YouTube. Thank you, whoever did that. That begins with the phrase, hey, look, it's a PC! (laughs) And there is just, it's just an empty PC case that they have bought for, you know, $50. And it's sitting in their parking lot. And they bring to bear, like, a crowbar, Uh, someone has the club, like the the car locking, steering wheel locking device, and other blunt instruments, and they just beat the ever-living crap out of this empty PC case because that was what everyone wanted to feel like in 1998.
1: It's like a more raw version of the classic printer scene from Office Space.
0: And I was thinking, oh, so this is like an Office Space homage, but this was a year before Office Space. (laughs) It came out in 1999, but they did continue with it. Um, I have not found this as of recording, but if I can find it, I will put it in notes. There was a sequel where they got another case, and they hooked it up with a rope to uh, someone's pickup truck and drove it through the parking lot at high speed. (laughs) That one was good. And there's another one that is on YouTube that's like seven minutes long, where they have like new editors, and they're like... They're like pseudo hazing ritual is this time they have like eight PC cases and, you know, just like generic beige tower cases made out of metal. They go clang when you hit them. Uh, they bend easily. There's nothing inside of them. Uh, and they go out in the parking lot and have some more fun with those. You know, this is this is their like equivalent of, you know, David Letterman throwing things off the top of the studio building. Right. Definitely. And you had mentioned that they had taken up. Uh, The whole Mac versus PC thing as a cause in general, Uh, possibly the most uh, obvious example of this is issue 13, where the cover just says fight back in capital letters uh, with a pixelated fist that's based on like the pointer hand uh, cursor, but turned around to be, um, you know, like a political protest raised fist. Yeah. So all of this definitely uh catered to a teenage boy audience, myself included. Uh, I will certainly cop to that. <laughs> we'll also link to an article, uh, another retrospective on Mac Addict, looking at it in the same way, making some of these same points by Nick Mediati uh, at Macgasm.net, which points out uh how it got him really excited about the Mac when he was a teenager and how it led to people founding websites with names like Macgasm, <laughs> but that was totally in keeping with um, the the way that Mac addict was. Um, looking back through these uh, and trying to be a little bit more grown up about it now, as we are, um, yeah, there was this sort of overwrought, cool and fight the man, fight the Windows PC kind of factor. Um, but I didn't think that the actual editorial content was all that bad. Um, and I think that, you know, there were always prominent women on the staff, Mm -hmm. um, with Cheryl England being the founding editor, um, and then having other prominent women in the staff. There was always a good mix there. Um, and while the jokes were sometimes juvenile, they did not I mean, I'm sure if you go through the whole hundred uh, issues, you can find some problematic jokes. Uh, but I don't think that it skewed towards the bro or the misogynist, um, which is good. But the ads were pretty bad. <laughs> and of course, they had to pay the bills. And they did know what their demographic was and that it skewed young and male. One of the things I saw, though, was like um, sort of the more violent the game, the better was one of the big advertising trends. And one of the big advertisers at this time, um, and a big culprit, uh, was a piece of the Mac community still then, Bungie.
1: Yeah, uh, so you you put two examples here in the show notes, and I'm picking up here because I remember the first one very clearly.
0: I saw this ad and I had never heard of this game before.
1: (laughs) The game is called Abuse, which on paper is already kind of a strike one. Uh, this was originally a DOS game that I remember playing uh, at a friend's house that was like a side-scroller that looked good for its day, but kind of like a juiced-up Mega Man. Um, but in keeping with, like, that, it's it's got a suspicious name and its larger context in these ads that were basically making violence glorified and cool, uh, Bungie was its publisher on the Mac. I think they developed the port from DOS to Mac and, and lent their name to the the box that went out in the stores. But the original developer of abuse is a nice little development firm called (laughs) crack.com. The dot and the com, the dot com is spelled out. So, you know, there, there's this undercurrent of, of violence and violence just for the sake of itself, uh, going throughout all of this. Bungie was, much better known for its, uh, I think it's original. No, Marathon was its original franchise, but, uh, its, its franchise of this time, the, the late nineties when it's advertising in Mac Addict was the Myth franchise.
0: Yeah. It was original in the sense that they were the creators and developers. It was their own property or, you know, intellectual property.
1: Ed, I even remember that either in Myth 1 or Myth 2, uh, there was the kind of the, the, almost bored sounding narrator voiceover so that when one of your party was was killed, you <laughs> just hear casualty. Oh, I do remember that. Like the highest stakes possible of of someone in your party has been killed and the narrator not caring at all. But uh separate from that, of course, were the ads for myth, which was
0: uh I don't know how you like it's an RPG, a strategy game. It's a real-time strategy game. It was one of the first full 3D rendered real-time strategy games, and it looked really good, and it was hard, and it was a well-constructed game.
1: Each installment was well-constructed, and it was a franchise that like, successfully built upon each prior entry in a way that a lot of video game franchises fail to do. So yeah, it was very well-regarded, but Ed, you've put some, uh, some of its advertising copy here in the show notes. Uh, I don't remember this ad, but it sounds very much in keeping with the tone of these games.
0: This was a full page back cover ad and it said, it's the subtleties of myth that make it great. That is, if you consider hacking up a dwarf, picking up his head and throwing it back at his own units, subtle. That
1: sounds right in line with how I remember playing the myth franchise.
0: Yeah. You, you commanded these little cartoon dwarfs and wizards around. And then when they got casualty, <laughs> uh, they left giant pools of blood behind. It was, um, as it's, as, as the marketing copy says, subtle. Yeah. So that's the magazine, which was, of course, the heart of Mac Addict. But let's move on to some of their other properties. One of the big things that Mac Addict had that other magazines didn't was a CD-ROM in every single issue.
1: And uh, I don't know if we've ever tackled Mac user groups or mugs on this show, but uh, it's not like Mac Addict was the only entity that would mail you a compact disc, or I guess even earlier, uh, one or more floppy disks with the the shareware and software updates of the time. But to do it in such a way that the disk was a produced and polished entity, it wasn't just a flat file structure of folders and game installers. The disk was its own publication, basically. And just like with the, the print magazines, you can go and get the disk images um, from every Mac attic disk, at least the ones that mattered, <laughs> on the Internet Archive. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately, it is not as easily browsable as the magazines themselves. So each CD is a ISO file, so it's all or nothing. And even on a fast Internet connection, the Internet Archive does not want to like totally saturate your download pipe with a 700 megabyte disk image. Uh, so it could take you a while. Uh, I have this later on in our notes, but I think I'll bring it to the top now since we're talking about it. I do know that at some point in the history of Mac Addict, their software collection that they had amassed on these CDs got so large and was so useful to people uh, that they started shipping on each new CD a browsable index of that and the past CDs uh, it was even small enough that you could copy it to your hard drive and then have a searchable index of, oh, I want to see which CD the Myth demo installer was on, for example, um, and you could type it in and find it and then go in your catalog of CDs and go, aha, here it's on number 68 or whatever it is, um, instead of putting the CDs in one by one and just failing for a long time. <laughs> um So I guess if there's some particular piece of software that you're looking for in a Mac Addict CD, go get one of the later ones from the Internet Archive, run the index software, and then find which other one you have to download from the archive, because it still solves the exact same problem of finding the thing that you want on a CD taking a really long time. In fact, it's slower now than it was then.
1: (laughs) I can say with certainty, because this was the one I, I grabbed at random to, uh, to just to remember what these were, were like in preparation for the show, that uh, disc number 35, which has Bungie's Oni on uh, the, the actual disc itself, uh, has this index on it. So at least going as far back as 35 will get you an index.
0: Oh man, Oni, topic for another show. This is another Bungie property, I believe. Sort of a third-person combat game. And uh, there's a port of it for os 10 that still runs at least as of now probably not next year um but you can run it in 4k <laughs> if you want oh yeah you
1: put up because the heads up display is rendered at like one-to-one pixels so it's just tiny
0: tiny tiny oh yeah it's like a half inch tall um it's impossible to actually actually play at that resolution anyway that's on number 35 so uh okay <laughs> good to know but yeah, it was, like you said, Brian knows publication, it was touted and referenced frequently in the print publication. Uh, they explained it in the editor's note for the first issue. I quote, Every issue of Mac Addict includes the super fat disc. Yes, that's P-H-A-T. <laughs> and then I have in my notes a name I think that they quickly and rightfully changed to just the disc, and then I had to cross that out. <laughs> because in the table of contents of issue number 36 it says i quote it's fat it's freaky it's fun the disc three of those are spelled with phs
1: <laughs> um so this disc we'll get to i guess like the the kind of main attraction of the disc in just a bit but to get it out of the way yes uh primarily the disc contained installers for Popular shareware of the moment, or demos of big AAA titles, often titles that may have been advertised in the magazine itself. Uh, There was even a folder on most, if not all, of the discs that was called "Sponsors," where you could actually get the uh, the software installers for companies that had actually paid for placement in the magazine and likely the compact disc as well. It's kind of delightfully
0: transparent.
1: And uh, in a service to its readers, uh, MacAdict would often get uh, large system updates from Apple. So some of the, the point updates to Mac OS were still free in the days before every Mac OS <laughs> update was free. And if you didn't want to waste your dial-up modem bandwidth, you know overnight to go from System 7.5.2 to 0.3, you could wait for the corresponding Mac addict disk to arrive in the mail and just install it from there.
0: And, of course, this was hugely useful in an era where I know I was still on dial-up for a large portion of this. Even when we moved to what passed for broadband then, it was slow broadband by the day's standards and certainly by today's standards. I mean, I think our first broadband connection was like 380 kilobit DSL, maybe 750 kilobit per second DSL um, yeah, still was going to take a long time to download, uh, large pieces of software. It was not the primary way of getting these things. And just the sheer volume of it, there really was no comparison to other Mac publications. Like I even found some recently going through some, some old stuff, um, CDs from Mac world, but they were a special, special occasion, uh, maybe one of those times that you would be convinced to buy their magazine off of the newsstand because you were getting an additional value. Um, but it was like maybe twice, four times a year at most. And this was crammed to the gills CDs. I mean, they, you know, if, if it had 670 megabytes of space on there, they went up to like 668 every single month, um, and really put on as much as they possibly could.
1: And a major part of that was uh, an executable, runnable application that you could use as your primary interface for everything on the disk. Uh, In the beginning, this was clearly made with Macromedia Director, as a lot of kind of simple multimedia-heavy applications were in those days. But as all
0: good CD-ROMs were, right? I mean, um, from, you know, commercial software was written in Director and... You expected that the the experience of running a piece of software is put in CD-ROM, open in Finder, see the big, like, run here logo, and then, or icon, and then maybe a folder or two. And sometimes they would do the thing where they would put the folder, like, hidden, like, 1200 pixels down into to the right outside of the window. Um but that was the structure. You had your multimedia experience, and then all your support files. Um, and the Mac addict CD was no exception to that pattern.
1: And if you want to uh, spend a lot of your time and bandwidth to get these CDs off the Internet Archive, and then either uh, get them onto your actual Mac or get them into Sheepshaver, uh, you'll see a progression <laughs> in in the the style and production value of these. Macromedia Director applications, which were uh, completely different for every disk, by the way, it should be said.
0: I guess that is one benefit of them being ISOs from the Internet Archive is that you can just put them in your emulator startup setup uh, and mount it that way.
1: So early on, a lot of the background images for the the various pages in these apps were like KPT Bryce, (laughs) fantastical worlds with gooey water textures.
0: They reviewed KPT Bryce 2 in the first issue. They loved it. I believe it was freaking awesome. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense looking at the CD because it's a lot of
1: like, you know, future future world. That's mostly water, but a couple of very Rocky islands. (laughs) Um, uh, And then uh, as, as their tastes progress or, you know, the, the taste of, of everything in general progresses to maybe a more iOS seven flatter world. Later, they even abandon Macromedia altogether and code their, uh, presentation app in real basic, but it, it keeps the same general structure of there's a main menu that has some kind of fun background screen and uh, a screen where you can within this presentation app navigate the, the folder directory of all the shareware and updates and et cetera, installable files on the CD from within the app and even launch the installer applications from there. So you never have to go back to the finder if you see something you like. And then getting back to, I think, our, our, our main focus of what made Mac Addict special. They included at least one, if not more of these videos, uh, from filmed at Mac Addict headquarters, featuring the Mac Addict staff on the CD. And some of them were sketches, if you can use the word sketches, like I described with just beating up PC tower cases. And some of them were almost like uh, precursors to the office where it's, Uh, you know, like embellished interviews with members of the Mac addict staff where you, I, there were one of them that I was looking at was basically uh, they, they caught one of the staff members as he's rebooting his Mac. And you can tell that this is not um, acted. It's not scripted because he's like, yeah, uh, I just got a bomb in the middle of something I was writing and I hadn't saved it. And so I'm just waiting for it to reboot and then I'm going to get back to writing it. And you can tell that someone's holding like a quick take or something in his face, catching him at the absolute worst moment. And this was the video they chose to include that month. And uh, going back through these is a great way to really get the, an idea of the, the fun spirit that uh, was certainly present when they were creating the magazine and thankfully captured in a way that us, the reader could feel like we were a part of as well
0: yeah man if i had if i have a lot of free time and decide to really peg the bandwidth of the internet archive it would be good to pull out just the videos and put those together in a collection uh where you can just go through them like like i said a few of them have made their way to youtube but um they're tough to find one other feature of the uh interactive multimedia portion of the disc was that they would include music tracks. Uh, and there would usually be these little like radio buttons where you could swap between four different background music tracks. And, uh, I have a very funny story <laughs> about these. Um, so I being a middle schooler slash high schooler who did not understand how the world worked, I would listen to these tracks and if I liked them, um, I think you could dig around in the resources, you know, dig around in the finder and actually get the MP3 files, and then I could, you know, pop them into Audion and put them in my playlists and that kind of thing. And so there was this one uh, kind of metal song that uh, I liked at the time and had listened to a bunch, and uh, it turned out that that band was from Cleveland, where I lived, and I discovered this because I was listening to the radio doing homework one night. And this band came on the like live in studio show and were playing they were playing the song that I had heard from the Mac addict CD. And they were taking calls, uh, off the air, thankfully. <laughs> uh, and I called in to tell the band uh about how I had discovered them through the Mac addict CD, and they had no idea what the heck I was talking about. <laughs> Which completely makes sense because like those tracks were probably, you know, they found those through, like, PR people who were pitching these bands, who were, you know, the, like, third cousin of so-and-so in the in the org chart at the band's label. Um, and they had no idea that their individual single was getting distributed on this CD-ROM with this computer magazine. Um, and, you know, it's these guys in a metal band, and they're like, uh, K, glad you like us. <laughs> And, uh, I will link to the song in question, um, which is on Spotify. Um, it's Inside by Switched. Uh, this is a link to a 2013 release of the song, but it's exact. I know that it's a- the exact same recording. Um, they did make the wise decision of no longer writing the eyes in their name with the numeral one. Oh God. Which also made it easier to find. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the disc was great. It was this great resource, uh, Eventually, though, I think its downfall was the fancy multimedia stuff. They were constantly having to give people detailed instructions and dedicate, like, half of a page of the magazine to tell people just how to use the CD, because at first they were early enough that they were having they had to have different versions for 68K and PPC. They didn't have universal binary. And so you had to choose the right one or it would crash and people would get angry and sad. Then there was finally like a year or so where it's like, okay, we can trust that all of you are using PowerPCs now and everything is fine. And then OS X came. And then they had to have separate versions for OS X and for Classic. And it was frequently best to just get in there uh, find those MP3 files, drop them straight into Audion, navigate through the software in the Finder, and uh, pull out whatever you wanted.
1: To your point, not only did they have to tell people in the print magazine, but when you first open the window of these disc images or the CDs as they were when uh, they're actively shipping, uh, like you said, like the window is constructed in in such a way it's very thoughtful to prioritize launching the icons for this. Uh, interactive multimedia presentation. And then there may be one or two folders that get you into direct installers. But uh, there are like three or four separate readme files that are like, here's the difference between 68k and PPC. Here's what to do if you can't have audio. Here's what you do. (laughs) Uh,
0: And everyone knows that everybody reads the readme file, and they especially read the correct of four readme files if there are four readme files. Uh,
1: One point about those readme files and the the finder browsing experience is uh, a lot of the folder icons and readme icons and certainly the application icon for the the presentation app were all custom made and like often not just the sloppy paste in a much larger image in Git info, but like detailed, uh, purposefully created 32 by 32 icons, uh, often featuring Macs, sometimes featuring Um, system icon replacement sets from the icon factory or elsewhere uh, used with permission and promotion of course um and it it was like so even that aspect of producing and creating the cd uh, was given some special attention and that like every facet of it uh makes me smile
0: yeah it really was uh half the experience and a great piece of um great piece of mac addict like you said, it, it connected, it, it built upon those characters and brought them to life even more. And I think that takes us to the final place where Mac addict had a presence, which was on the web. And compared to the magazine and the disc, I think it definitely is the, the also-ran, the third component, uh, as opposed to how we think of publications now, even ones that still have print counterparts. Uh, the web is the primary place that we think of going to get our Mac News now. Um, So it kicked off uh, basically around the same time as the first couple issues came out. And it really was for extra features, um, but not like go to our website and download this piece of software. That was what the disk was for. They didn't want to burden people with large internet downloads. And they probably didn't want to pay to serve them either. Um, so it was for these smaller extra features and between issue news updates. You know, if, you know, when the iMac came out, <laughs> they probably mentioned it on their website first.
1: I, I admittedly did not go to their website, at least, uh, in the, in the early years or when I was an active subscriber.
0: Oh, I followed it religiously. It was in the, do you remember the feature in Internet Explorer five, where you could put your bookmarks in a sidebar? And then it would go and load just the HTML and none of the supporting resources.
1: To let you know if it had updated?
0: Yes. It was like poor man's RSS before R- RSS had been invented. It was at the top of my like check subscriptions thing there uh, every day.
1: So yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't a regular visitor to their website. So I spent some time going through the uh, Internet Archive's capture of it around this time. And I noticed they had a column on their website called This Old Mac, which was, you know, particularly striking to me because the old Macs in 1996 were basically like the all-in-one classics and the two-line and everything else was still like kind of modern. And uh, so whatever timed capture uh, I was able to pull up, those were the only Macs that they were talking about in the
0: column. And SE30 only wasn't modern because, uh, you know, it had a black and white screen and wasn't PowerPC. And so otherwise fine. One thing that is very
1: late 90s about the Mac Addict website and things that I saw elsewhere on the internet at that time was it uh, had a web ring, a network of similarly minded sites that liked to uh, share their traffic with each other to boost everyone's numbers. And um, it was called the Mac Addict Network, and it included some other websites that I definitely remember going to uh, around this general time including the Icon Factory, which we've talked about here on the show and still exists today. Version Tracker, which um, I think I, I used pretty regularly for like a period of, of of classic Mac or early OS X.
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I would say for like the first five years of OS X. Uh,
1: Mac Surfer.
0: Which still exists, still updates. I'm reading Mac Surfer right now. iPhone 10R XR looks, to, looks set to become a massive smash hit. Cult of Mac, 7.01 a.m still exists um i guess people making shortcuts uh if you want um if you want like plain text apple news mac surfer go scrape it it's the best
1: and then this last one on this list that's not the entire mac Attic network but uh, a big player on the mac related internet at the time guy kawasaki's evangelist who's uh icon of the the six color apple stripe but a hand in front of it clutching a lightning bolt. I remember seeing link to on pretty much every website that I cared about at this time because everyone wanted to participate in this, <laughs> this feeling of uh, it's us, the Mac against the world and uh, Guy Kawasaki's evangelist website and group uh, I think was, was at the forefront of that movement. <laughs>
0: Not to harp on Mac Surfer, but while I was there, I, I hit the end key to go down and see if they still have the silly credits at the bottom, and sure enough, they still do. And also, lurking down there at the bottom of the page is a little tiny image. I would say, I don't know, maybe uh, 60 by 80 pixels. It says MacAddict.com, top Mac site, and it's got a little, like, smiling Macs. And it links to MacAddict.com, which unfortunately, if you go to now, for whatever reason, through mergers, acquisitions, and corporatism, <laughs> links to Tech Radar. Oh yeah, I
1: just loaded it. Look at his little face. And it's like one of the old kind of not-corporate logos, too.
0: One other thing that was delightful about the MacAddict website, if you remember it from its early days, was... It was so green and purple. (laughs) The rest of the magazine, like this was not like part of their, I mean, they had bright colors, but it was not part of their logo. It was just like, whoever put together this page in raw HTML in 1996 was like, what colors can I use? And they decided that, 99FF00 bright green would be perfect for the background, and 660066 dark purple would be great for the links and sidebar. Um, and it was absolutely garish. Uh, after about a year, they toned it down to a slightly more pastel purple and green, but they stuck with the purple and green. It was like their calling card on the web. Um, and I think the original little Mac Attic Network logo had, uh, green and purple in it as well. Ironically, we talked about the corporatization and that kind of thing. Um, in 2000, they redesigned both the magazine and the website. And 2000, right? We're, we're talking like colorful IMAX, um, you know, blue towers. And they went with this like ugly beige, like the worst kind of light brown <laughs> Color across the entire site. We'll link to we'll link to Wayback Archive of both of these versions, and then the last phase of the website was in two thousand three. Uh, so I guess this is while it was still Mac addict before Mac Life, but it felt very Mac Lifey. It got sort of an OS X style redesign. It had horrendous sidebar banner ads, some of which have been preserved in the Wayback Archive, uh, and basically turned into kind of a link blog. I mean, they they primarily posted links in the early days, too, but it was with their little witty banter, um, and this was more just straight-up summarizing. There were also, I mean, there are things that are lost and are no longer available through the Internet Archive. They apparently had... You can see sort of vestiges of this. Apparently, they had a huge fan art community. Um, There were forums that that existed through all three incarnations of the site and were apparently a pretty vibrant community. I don't have particular memories of them, but that was ongoing the whole time. They sold merch through the website— I wish I had bought some. Yeah. Uh, if any listeners have Mac Addict merch and would like to send us pictures, we will totally feature it on Twitter. Um, but these were the kinds of things that they were doing through the website, keeping it light and fun uh, when they weren't uh, just in print in the magazine. So I think that that uh, is maybe a good place to wrap up on the history of Mac Addict and uh, just to sum it up and remember that it did have this really cool community feel both from the outside and from the inside and the fact that they were willing to show it off in the magazine, in the CD and to a lesser extent on the web. And I feel like, uh, you know, their prime was the late nineties, I'd say 98, 99, maybe a little bit into 2000. Um, and for that whole time, they had, like we've said, we've used words like camaraderie. I feel like they had this kind of almost like pirate radio vibe where they were working together as a group and they knew that there was a like-minded group out there that was participating and reading and viewing the things that they were creating. And it it felt out of place in a world where print publications were our primary access to tech news – but it feels very familiar now because I think the best analogy is that the editors at Mac Addict had the kind of chemistry that like a good panel podcast has today. And there were, uh, you know, people came and went and rotated into different positions, but they had that feel of uh, having a lighthearted commentary on technology, which is something that frankly, we need in in every era of technology. And it was my favorite back then.
1: I can do no better than that. I completely agree with especially that sentiment of how they were able to play up themselves and bounce off of each other in a way that made everything they worked on, the print magazine, the CD, I guess even the website, uh, like better than the sum of its parts. It was all enhanced by the personality of uh, the people working on it. And the shared personality that like everyone under the the, the pirate Mac Addict flag uh, felt.
0: So that's some of our favorite parts of the history of Mac Addict. If there's something that you think that we should particularly call out in a future episode, especially if you can point us to the exact place on the Internet Archive or, you know, YouTube videos that we didn't quite uncover, uh, we would love that. You can get in touch with us the usual ways. You can send us feedback on our website, which is simplebeep.com, or you can find us on Twitter at simple underscore beep.
1: You can also find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O.
0: And I'm at e E E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.